and you've given us the responsibility and privilege of figuring out how to fulfill the calling you've placed upon us, as Pastor Harding said, to take from the world that which is good and sift out that which is bad, as Pastor Neil said, and to do so in a way that honours you and takes full account of all that you've said about how we should live our lives. And we pray now that as Pastor Drew comes to speak to us, you'd open our eyes further to how we might go about doing that. That we will go away from here with fresh insights and fresh resolve as we seek to live in this world that you've placed us in, but not to be contaminated by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, in introducing Pastor Brief, I want to tell you about an uh, email that I received. I want to email this as a pastor. It's an email uh, I received. It was sent by a young man in his 20s. He began the email by saying, I've been thinking about this for a very long time, and, and then he proceeded to write five, six paragraphs declaring his opinion about what he was talking about. I just laughed. Because I thought, no, you're 25 years old, you haven't been thinking about anything for a very long time. <laughs> um, but there's one man in this room who has. Uh, you saw all five of us up here earlier, five pastors, and we are all pastors. But you should know that there are some men among us who are pastors to the pastors. And we're privileged to have one of those with us today. Um, Pastor Booth is, how long have been? 40 years nearly, pastoring. Married 50 years next year. Uh, yeah, um, nobody pays Pastor Booth more because he spends the dozens of hours organising and the hundred or so hours attending this event. He does it because he's a, a pastor to you. He's a pastor actually to the four of us. And I can testify to that. And so this is a treat that many people never get, many of you get every week, to hear Pastor Booth talk. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, don't make just a little bit of noise as you welcome your pastor and our friend, Pastor Booth. Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. I want to offer two talks on the affirmation of the world. We're talking about how to be in the world, but not of the world. And sometimes that becomes kind of confusing language in the Bible. And so we're going to look at a little bit of that and recognize that we're really kind of talking about two different worlds that overlap. And we have a a presence in this world, and yet we're told uh, we're not of this world. uh, And the kingdom is not of this world. And so there's a lot of ofs and ends and that kind of thing. I want to start with just a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, the Christian and the materialist, the person who thinks that all there is is the physical world that has evolved over eons of time, the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply does not fit the real universe. So we talk about two worlds, but one of them is going to be real, and the other one is not real. And uh, we, we are faced with both of those, and, and what we're called to do is to recognize that distinction and be able to be in the world and yet not of the world. So I want to start where we should always start as believers, and that's with the Word of God. I'm going to use a phrase that I learned from Dr. Rushdie many years ago, the law word of God, kind of a hyphenation. Because God's word is law. It's the rule. It's the standard. And it's always our starting place. This was true in the garden at the time of creation, and it is still true today. God's law word still governs the world. It provides, if you will, the operating system. Others, during and after the fall, have sought to replace God's operating system with their own operating system. So the the two operating systems offer two different worlds. One is reality, uh, the first, uh, and the first, excuse me, the other is an alternative reality, which is contrary to reality. It's not really a reality. The first world, God defines. He interprets. He identifies. In the second world, man defines. Man interprets and identifies. So, the primary question is this. Who's to say? We have have some problems, and that is a gross understatement. We've had them from the beginning. We still have them. God has been pleased to describe the problems to us. He has also offered the remedy and the warnings. Genesis gives us a snapshot of the first sin, the place where we first got off the tracks. The serpent said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Genesis 3.1 And so in this first sin, we can see all sins. And if we're to find the remedy, then it will come at the same juncture where we went wrong. I was tempted this morning, I told my wife I was going to button my shirt in the wrong buttonhole and come up here and lecture that way, but I decided to be even more distracting than I already am. Um, If we get it wrong first, then everything that follows is wrong. And so, um, if... uh, so the question then, and to put it another way, we said, who's to say, is another way of saying, who's in charge? 
Who's in charge of the world? Who's in charge of you? Of course, this is the ultimate question, and one that comes up over and over in this world. It was the first question in the garden. It's the same question at your house. Every person, every child, will seek to answer that question. We think we want to be in charge to do whatever is right in our own eyes, to go where we want to go, to pursue any relationship that we want to pursue, to never be told no or made to do things that we don't want to do. By the way, if you have people in your life that love you that tell you no, that's one of the things I would urge you to give thanks for tonight. Uh, that is of more value than you can imagine. Paradise, we think, is in our own hands. If only I could be in charge. If only I could be as God. Of course, being in charge of ourselves is kind of the equivalent of being our own attorney. Uh, and the saying is you would have a fool as a client. Uh, or it's a bit like giving yourself a haircut. Uh, it never works out too well, does it? We are not capable of being in charge. We are, uh, you know, two-year-olds, five-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, even 60-plus-year-olds all think that they know enough to be in charge of themselves. And if you don't believe it, just ask them. I know. I know. I know. So, parents, pastors, teachers, and ultimately, God doesn't understand us or our circumstances, but of course, we think we do. And so, God, in effect, says sometimes, Oh, you want to be in charge, do you? Have at it. Let's see how this turns out. You see, we currently have a world that is in charge of itself. How's that working out? Now then, deception is where all the trouble begins. A lie. Believing something that we shouldn't have. Uh, it was also the first case of eating something we shouldn't have. Um, which just a side note reminds me of the funniest commercial I ever saw that didn't air on American TV. It was French and it was two men in a lifeboat out in the ocean. Day came, day went, sunset, sunrise, several days. They're getting more and more gaunt. And finally, one day, the sun rose, and there was only one man in the boat. And the other one had a glass. And he put some Alka-Seltzer in the glass. And it said Alka-Seltzer. For that time when you've eaten something you shouldn't have. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, Adam and Eve ate something they shouldn't have. Eve was sold something by a slick, slimy salesman. By the way, he is still in business, and in fact, his business is doing quite well. The challenge then, and now is, as always, to the Word of God. He created the world by the Word of His power. When God spoke and said, let there be light, there was light. His word defines the world. Everything in it, its existence, is rooted in his word. Your existence is in his word. A tree is a tree because that's what God says it is. He defined it. 
And so, he created the world by the word of his power, and fallen man is sought to create another world by the word of his power. We don't want your word to define the world. We want our word to define the world. And it matters, and it matters deeply, and it matters eternally what we believe. We see in the garden that deception came first, which produced a false belief, and then a deadly action. Think of a pit that is covered with limbs and leaves, and then it's baited, and its its design is to deceive an animal into venturing out in order to get the bait, only to find the false floor giving way as they fall into the trap. This is what makes pop culture of our world so deadly. Especially for young people who perceive themselves as having sufficient knowledge to make wise choices. Uh, Many of you have heard me say this before. I just said it to someone earlier in a private conversation. If you're 20 or 25 or whatever, subtract 10 years. If you were 20, think of when you were 10. How much have you learned in 10 years? You're going to learn more than that in the next 10. You don't, anybody ever consult 10-year-olds for advice anymore? Did, <laughs> did you when you were 10? Yeah, because you thought, well, but they know like me, they know a lot. Okay? And you love 10-year-olds, and they're, you know, they're cute, and you, you enjoy being with them, but you recognize they're 10-year-olds, and you don't seek their counsel for a good reason. And so... You might say, after all, I've lived 20 years, 25 years. Stop telling me what to do. You see, it's not just that I want to be like God. I actually want to be God, and so does everyone else in the world. We have a world full of demigods. Eugene Peterson wrote, I take it as a given that all of us would prefer to be our own gods than to worship God. The Eden story is reenacted daily. It turns out uh, that popularity is not a good guide to the truth. It is, however, one of the devil's favorite ways of sucking us in. And this is the alternative world. And so uh, Vanity Fair uh, has been open for a long time. Again, everyone familiar with London's uh, allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, that's probably my favorite passage in that story. Christian and faithful are on their journey and they come to the place called Vanity Fair. And we read there, almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city as these two honest persons are. And Belzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their companions, perceiving the path that the pilgrims made, that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity, they contrived here to set up a fair. A fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all the year long. And it's bigger and better now than ever. The devil is up on all the latest technology. If he's nothing else, he's cool. Uh, As Bob Dylan said, I don't know which is worse, being cool or doing your own thing. Uh, It's a toss-up. The enemy's goal is to edge you away, step by step, to distract you, to lure you, to steal you, 
without you even knowing it. That's always preferable. Read uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, Screw Tape Letters is great on this. And so, for example, uh, in Screw Tape, uh, uh, the this, this senior demon, of course, captures this idea. He said, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. He continues, all is summed up, I love this, in the prayer which a young female human is said to have uttered recently. Quote, Oh God, make me a normal 20th century girl. End quote. Thanks to our labors, this is the devil talking, this will mean increasingly, make me a minx, that's a flirtatious woman, a moron and a parasite. So, this other world is, like Vanity Fair, is beckoning you and me. And it has a lot of shiny, flashy, sparkly things to get our attention. Here's an important thing for you to remember. Everyone, everyone, including me, including all the pastors here, everyone is trying to sell you something. All the time. Now, they might be trying to sell you something good, but they might not. So it's important to remember everyone is trying to sell you something all the time. Now, some of us, again, being sold is good, some not. That doesn't alter the inescapable fact that the world is full of salesmen. And when a three-year-old is racing down the cereal row at the grocery store, and lo and behold, at eye level, there are tricks, which are for kids. Uh, and you know that because of the colorful box and the toy inside, not to mention the candy-coated cereal. Now, he's buying, that is, the three-year-old, and he doesn't even know anyone selling him anything. General Mills, on the other hand, knows exactly what they're doing. They have done a lot of research. And the devil knows how the sales business works, including the power of impulse items and how to close the sale. Of Philippians 3, 18-19, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So we have enemies of the cross out there. And, and, and Paul's saying, you know, I'm telling you this, I've told it to you often, and I'm telling it to you weeping to make sure you understand this, that there are bad people and bad ideas out there that are being pressed upon you all the time. Now hopefully, you will be, someday when you have a three-year-old, you will be watching them at the grocery store, monitoring their cereal purchases and making sure that no one snatches them while you're at the store. But the same diligence is going to be needed for your teenagers. And others. In fact, 
all of us need monitoring because anyone can be snatched, sold the bill of goods. So then, who's to say? Somebody is God, and somebody's word is supreme. The minute you reject the God of the Bible, another God steps in to direct you. It's an exchange. Everything is at stake. Your life, the life of your children, and the life of the world. And if you abandon the truth, then all that's left is what? A lie. It's all deceit. It's all a con. And just as truth has consequences, lies have consequences. The tools of postmodernity are spin and smear and the challenging of all truth claims. You can't know the truth. That's the world we live in. Truth is unknowable. Your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth. Everybody has their own truth because everybody's their own God. And so there is no ultimate truth. There is no overarching authority. And so it dismisses its opponents who would raise such a crazy notion that there is some overarching morality and truth and authority and absolute truth. You're crazy. You're stupid. You're backwards. And where does that lead? In the Gospel of John, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And Jesus had already declared himself to be the truth. And God's word was the truth, but the crowd response, uh, crowd's response to the question was, we have no king but Caesar. So somebody has to say, there is always an authority. Loving someone is giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want. And God has told us no at many points, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us, and parents and others in authority do the same. And again, if you have people in your life who told you no, then be sure to thank them. We are told no, when we are told no, it often in the moment makes us unhappy. We might pitch a fit. We might go to great lengths to manipulate those who are telling us no in order to get what we want. There are a host of inventive methods used to accomplish these self-serving ends, including deception, anger, threats, guilt, all kinds of things we do to get what we want when we want it. Um, but true love holds firm. God doesn't change his word. His word is everlasting. It's the one thing in addition to God himself that is eternal, unchanging. Love is willing to suffer in the moment in order to attain the ultimate good of the object of love. And so giving in to the fit of the manipulation might appear to bring temporary relief, uh, but in the end, it destroys everyone. Misery, sorrow, shame, and sometimes regret follow in its wake. Thankfully, Christians, all you followers of Jesus, all of you who by definition by being a follower of Jesus, have already denied yourself and taken up your cross and say, I am following him, and have said, not my will, but your will be done. 
all of you who are followers of Jesus, He is in charge of you. We are in His world. If He's your Lord, then you've acknowledged that you are no longer God. You live in His world, not your world. He is the Lord, and you are not. What a simple, profound proposition. He is the boss of me. Period. That's the world I live in. So whatever the other questions that follow that question are, we start with that one. What about this? Who can I marry? What kind of work can I do? How should I spend my money? How should I dress? How should I talk? Every other question starts with, I don't know, let me check with the boss. He's the Lord of me. I work for him. I'm here to glorify him. I'm here to do what he says. So the true God has wisely put others in charge of us, loving parents, teachers, pastors, others who are willing to stand in our way to keep us from getting our own way, and godly people who can see further than us and who are willing to sacrifice themselves for their objects of love, which is us, God's given us that. That's why the church is so important. That's why godly families are so important. Coming to something like this is important to realize you're not alone. We're walking together. And so we're going to need a comprehensive theology uh, that embraces all the real world. And Reformed theology offers a distinctive biblical view of life in the world. The things we see, which are temporary, along with the unseen or eternal things. Because if you exclude half of that, then you will lack the full picture, and a half-truth is a lie. Are there realities that you cannot see? Yes. And they're just as real as the ones you can see. And if you cut those out, you say, I'm only going to take the ones I can see. Only things I can turn green in the test to. Follow the science. <clears throat> then you've left out an enormous part of the equation. You have a half truth. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So I want to, in the rest of this talk, and, and I will finish up uh, on uh, Saturday morning with the second part, I'm going to deal with two Reformed principles in the world and not of the world. I'm going to address the first one now and the second one later uh, on Saturday along with a few applications of that. The first Reformed principle is that the physical world was created by God. He spoke it into existence. And therefore, the material world, matter, is not evil. Many in the Western intellectual world have had the idea that Christianity is an escapist religion. It doesn't have anything to do with this created order here. It's pie in the sky, by and by. Aren't we supposed to be otherworldly and longing for heaven? And so this is a Gnostic notion 
that there is something wrong with matter or the physical world, including our physical bodies, and thus our ultimate goal is to escape this world and escape to heaven and have like, escape our bodies even. Because the material world is bad. The Bible teaches us, though, that the physical world was created by God, and what did he pronounce on it after he created it? It was very good. So this created order is our natural habitat. God created us with physical bodies to live in this physical world. We were not designed to escape this physical world, and matter is not evil. So just to bring tie this in with what I've said before, who's to say? God's to say, and he said he created the world, and he said the world is very good, and he put us in it to take care of it. He is telling us what to think about this world that we live in, the real world. In traditional Roman Catholic theology, there is a hierarchy of good. God, angels who are spiritual, man is a mixture of spiritual and material. <clears throat> Animals are just animated matter. Uh, pure matter are things like rocks and dirt. And they go into greater detail in the medieval period. And, th and this is what was called the chain of being. Uh, so many looked at what the Bible says about the flesh and interpreted that to mean that the material body is evil. Thus, living in this world, they might say, is a necessary evil. Your bodies have desires for food and sex and sleep and money and comfort and so forth. And what you need to do is escape this for another worldly order. You're really spiritual. You just don't pay attention to those things. You try to escape those things one way or the other. And so, Reformed theology says that the physical world is not to be shunned, but rather is good. God made us to live here. And he also gave us directions in his law word as to how to live in this physical world. He gets to define and govern us in the world that he made, and he shows us the tracks on which our train is to run. When is a train most free? All the tracks are off. Off. It's most free. How, long, how far is it going to go if it's off the tracks? That's the illusion, right? Oh, I hate these tracks. They, they make me have to stay on these tracks. Okay, you want off the tracks? So what's the alternative here? God made the train and he made the tracks for us to run on. And this is where we are the most free, is on the tracks. And we say, I don't like these tracks that he made. Then we die. Just like the train does. Now, evidence of this truth, John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, this is a reference to Jesus, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the incarnation, which means the enfleshing, affirms the goodness of the material world. It also affirms at the very end of it is also affirmed at the very end of history, because we believe that our ultimate hope is not that our souls go float up on a cloud in heaven. Wouldn't that be horrible? But rather that our physical bodies will be resurrected. Now that's exciting. Romans 8.23, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our 
bodies. First Corinthians 15, 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and is raised in incorruption. Imagine your body with no sin, no sickness, no nothing wrong with it. It works perfectly. And again, likewise, imagine you without sin. That's even harder to imagine, isn't it? That is the new heavens and the new earth. And, and, how, and I think God wants us to use our imagination here. So go ahead and imagine all you want. I, I have this kind of fantasy imagination that maybe, maybe in the new heavens and the new earth, God's going to give us like five new senses. And so I said, well, what are they? I have no idea. I couldn't have brought up these five. <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? If I'm wrong, and I probably am, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to say, boy, the new heavens and the new earth would have been great if only God had done this. You know? So I'm going to be surprised, and I'm going to get it wrong about any number of things, but I am not going to be disappointed in the least, and neither will you. Um, and so it is sown in dishonor, that is, when we die, it's sown in dishonor, bodies corrupt, it's raised in glory, it's it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What is? Your body. Your physical body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now how can we be raised a spiritual body if spirit and body are set against one another? Both physical and spiritual combine now and then. So when somebody dies physically, they don't cease to exist. But they are separated from their bodies, and that's why we await the resurrection, so that those things are brought back together, so that the body is animated by spirit. But both physical and spiritual bodies combine to comprise reality. And it's when we deny one or the other that we are left with a perverted view of reality, a false view of the world. This is one of the problems with the materialist, those who don't believe in spirit, don't believe in God, don't believe in the soul. All we're left with is a body. Molecules in motion. And if you're just a body, then that means you're just a machine. And if you're just a machine, and there is no God and no authority outside of you, and you're your own God, then you can do what you want to with that machine. Just like you could with your car. You could park it. Drive it backwards, drive it forward, drive it in a ditch. If you're a car, drive it fast, drive it slow. Are you making any connections here with the world that we live in? That we have a whole world of people who think they can do whatever they want to do, and no one can tell them otherwise because they're God. This is my body. I can do what I want to with it. And if I want to be a woman, and if I want to be a turkey, and if I want to be... Uh, a different race, if I want to be whatever I want to identify as, I will define the world I live in because I am God. I create the world. You can create your own world. Live and let live. That's kind of the American motto. Do your own thing. You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. You don't judge me. I won't judge you. Live and let live. 
Our bodies are animated by spirit. In fact, as believers who know, who live, who now live in the new creation, we are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and thus we are animated by Him. And if we are truly animated by Him, we live a new way, live in a new way, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So, for example, First uh, Thessalonians four one through eight. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk or live to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel or body in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, uh, because uh, the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us uncleanness, but in holiness, therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let me just summarize that really quickly. If this isn't true, and all you have is your body and your natural desires, go for it. Why not? You're an animal. Feed your lusts. It's natural, right? No, it's unnatural. Uh, the Bible uses the word, describes uh, unbeliever as the natural man. And what it means there is this is man apart from God. <coughs> this is man on his own, without the supernatural. But you're believers, and you're not without the supernatural. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You see reality as it really is, which is a combination of physical and spiritual. And you're not leaving out half the equation. So in the new heavens and the new earth, our resurrected bodies, animated fully by the Holy Spirit, will live forever. This is what uh, Dr. J. Adams calls more than redemption. A man was in paradise, he fell, but actually now the work of Christ is going to take us beyond paradise. Uh, even better than what Adam had. Nevertheless, this is really important that you understand that the new creation is not something we are waiting to start. It has already started. So what does the Bible mean by true spirituality? Sometimes people think of being monastic. Let's just withdraw from the world. Let's go live on a mountaintop. To be super spiritual is to be withdraw from the world and to operate outside of the physical. Um, when I was a young man working in a retail jewelry store in the mall, uh, not an uncommon occurrence, a scantily clad, shapely young woman came into the store, and I undramatically turned and walked uh, in the opposite direction. wasn't trying to make a scene, just turned and walked away. And after she left the store, one of the other young salesmen commented to me, oh, I guess that doesn't bother a good Christian like you. And uh, But he was wrong. I wasn't above the temptation of lust, but I was under the obligation to do what Paul had instructed Timothy to do. In other words, there was a power outside of my physical fleshly desires that was above me, and that was God himself, the Holy Spirit, as Paul instructed Timothy to flee youthful lust. Because if you follow that, it'll kill you. There's a power greater than me 
That's good news. That's great news, because if it's up to me, I'm in big, big trouble. Every direction I turn. Because I only have half the truth. And I'm going to die. It's going to kill me. Bit by bit. Maybe by a thousand cuts. But it will kill me. And it kills people all around us all the time. Romans 8, 5-9. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. In other words, if all there is is the body and the flesh and the physical world, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally or fleshly minded is death. If, if this is all there is, is our physical bodies and the physical world, that, he says, is uh, death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal or fleshly mind is enmity against God. Why? Because the, the person who says all there is is the physical says there is no God. I hate God. I, I don't want any God telling me what to do. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh, those who are in that state of mind, those who think that this is it, cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. That is, you don't live just in terms of the physical world. Indeed, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. To be in the flesh is to try and live in this physical world with only half of what it takes. Reality requires that the spirit of the flesh both be taken into account. And if we simply give in to the physical without regard to the spiritual truth, that is, God's law, word, we will die. Spirit and flesh are not set against one another. So that I may choose one over the other. Rather, the flesh is to be governed by the spirit, which is through his word. The Holy Spirit is the one who that applies the word of God to us. And so we're back to where I started. God gets to tell me how I can and how I cannot use my body. That includes my mind and every other aspect of my body. So we come into the world in our natural fallen condition, totally depraved, totally affected by sin, apart from the Spirit, cut off from God, dead in trespasses and sins, and this is what the Bible means when it refers to our living according to the flesh, apart from the Spirit. The body is not the problem. It is the body separated from the Spirit. <clears throat> if I simply follow the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh in my pride, do whatever I want to do in the moment, this is a misuse of the body that will lead to destruction. To live according to the Spirit is not against the body, but rather to have our bodies directed by the Spirit. A life lived exclusively in the flesh is death, because it's separated from God. Death is separation, by the way. It's not non-existence. Just to be cut off from the source. A life lived according to the Spirit, we're told, is life and peace. It's a good life. Ecclesiastes 11, 9-10 Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. In other words, 
young man, young lady, you're young, enjoy life, go ahead and do whatever you want to do. But know this, that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Oh, wait a minute. There's some limitations. The walls of this room. Remember I said God sometimes tells us you can do whatever you want to in here, but you can't go over there. If you go over there, you'll die. So stay here. Enjoy life right here. I've given you lots of elbow room. You can do all kinds of things. You can sing and dance. You can do art. You can do math. You can rest, play, laugh, have families, eat great food, celebrate, rest. We can go on and on and on. You can, do, you can have a party all the time as long as you're in this room. Paul draws the same contrast in Ephesians 4. This I say therefore in testifying the Lord that you, believers, should no longer live or walk as the rest of the Gentiles or the unbelievers walk in the futility or emptiness of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because they don't believe in that stuff, because of the ignorance that is in them, and because of the blindness of their heart. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. I mean, if this is it, right? If this is it, there is no life beyond this. This is it then you better get all you can. Now, today. But you, Christians, have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, their bellies of their gods, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So according to Reformed theology, the physical world was created good. Matter is not evil. The physical body is not evil. Jesus took on a physical body. The hope of the Christian is in the resurrection of the body. True spirituality in the Bible is not a matter of emphasizing internal feelings, but rather having our whole being body and soul directed by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you different from the world. Now you can be in this physical world that God created and called good but not be of this alternative world that tries to live apart from God and tries to be our own God. You have a creator who has told you how to use and maintain your body. We understand in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is death. Now I want to close this session by reading from Romans 1, a passage, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32, that I believe is just full of instruction for us about this topic and many others. How many of you have been to Japan? How many of you believe Japan exists? Why? Those of you who have not been, why do you believe it exists? Somebody told me. Can you believe? 
Why? <coughs> most people agree. Most people agree. Have you talked to most people? Okay. Most of the people you talk to agree. Uh, I, don't, I suspect most of you aren't talking about this with most people. Um, yes. Um, pictures. All right, pictures. And books. And teachers. Uh, yes. People who I've gone that I trust have told me. Okay. The people you trust told you and you believe them. Most of what you believe, you believe because somebody you trust told you. In fact, almost everything you think you know and believe, you know and believe because somebody told you. Most of it. Can you always believe your eyes? Another choice. Another lecture. <laughs> Here's the deal. We are believers because we believe God who cannot lie has told us. And he's told us things we could not know that had he not told us. Because we live in darkness. But he has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But here's what the Bible says about all mankind. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know better. I don't care what they say. I'm an atheist. No, you're not. We're going to have a discussion about that. But no, you're not. Because... That which may be known about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So God is revealing to us the truth. And he's telling me something about all mankind. They know. They know within themselves because they've created the image of God. And that which is known, uh, God is manifest to it because God himself says, I've shown them. They do know that. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. That's God's description of all human beings. Yeah, but they say they don't believe in him. They're not telling the truth. Now, he goes on. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful that they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God. In other words, they changed the glory of this very good world that God created into an image made like corruptible man. And birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Anything but God can be God. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. In fact, God says, you want to try to live in this world without me? Go for it. 
He gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. In other words, now we're just going to be beasts, right? We're going to be like the animals, and we're going to live for our lust, our, our sensual desires. And he says, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature, which could include man, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. These are the two worlds. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was their due. This is often how God's judgments work. Just say, okay, you want to do this? Go for it. Let's see how, how that comes out and what, what happens in judgment. I'm miserable. I'm unhappy. My life's at rest. Anybody, you may be familiar with the so-called philosopher Martin Sade. Heard of sadism. He's a sadist. He liked inflicting pain upon people and he gained sexual pleasure from that. And his basic philosophy was this. If God said not to do it, I want to do it. And that is what gives me pleasure. Being a bad boy. Being my own God. I will determine what's good and bad. And he is not going to tell me what to do. And the Marquis de Sade just articulated what I think is true for most people. Unbelievers who might not be as bold and arrogant as so much to say. I think that's why many pop artists are popular because uh, in my days, Madonna and there's plenty of others that have followed in their footsteps. If you can be blasphemous and wretched and you can sing about it and you can do it with lots of uh, showbiz and production quality and be number one on the charts, everybody loves that because vicariously, they are saying what others wish they had the courage to say. God, leave me alone. I want my own world. And I don't want you to have anything to say about it. And then finally, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. I mean, our world, we have a world that is constantly trying to shock us to something new. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, Boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know. They know. They always know that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, 
but approve of those who practice them. These are the two worlds. There's the world God rules, and he gets to say, and there's the world where we try to say for ourselves. Those are your two alternatives. So Christians, we are called to live in the real world, under God's rule, under his dominion, body and soul, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for your word that tells us the truth, that reveals what we wouldn't know on our own because we are in darkness. And we are eternally grateful that you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Help us now to learn how to navigate in this world, to be in it, to represent you in it, to be reflections of your glory in it, but not be of this corrupted version of the world that's all around us, this vanity fair that is always barking at us and calling us to participate in the lie. Help us to... To, to not only recognize the salesmen that are always around us, but more importantly, to know what they're selling, so that we would not be children tossed by every wind of doctrine. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.